Okay, this is Keith, Music Man Handelic, with the Final on Vinyl podcast. I'm with Kev Rowland. He's in New Zealand, and he has three books coming out. Uh, two that are out now, right, Kev, for uh, the music reviews you've done over the years, right? Yep, that's right. And the third one should be out just after Christmas. It's already with the publisher. You know, I've been writing for 21 years, and when I saw that you wrote like 800 reviews in one year, how in God's name did you manage to do that? I just, I just can't comprehend that. Yeah, I've, I've always been a more of a volume reviewer than I have been of uh, someone who writes lengthy reviews. Um, and I think that was when I started doing this in the 90s, there were so few of us writing anything about, particularly about progressive music, that I was flooded with material. And at one time I was turning around a 150 page magazine every six to eight weeks. And um, it was just, I always had to, I got into the habit of spending as much spare time as possible listening and then really sitting down and I can crunch out five reviews in an evening. Um, and then I can take a break and do another five later on. So I think, you know, the most I've written in a week is approaching 40, which was just because I'd managed to get a lot of listening done beforehand. And then I just had the time to sit down, but it's just, dedication in some ways um i i feel honored to be in a position where people want to send me music and i feel it's my duty to be able to write about it and respond to it as quickly and as effectively as i can uh, my books are dedicated to my wife and my children my children grew up knowing dad wasn't down the pub dad was in the study cranking away on yet another issue of the magazine and my wife was saying to me yet again when was the deadline have you missed your deadline again and it's just habit now i just every night i try and write i try and write every day um i'm a classic introvert and i'm in a very stressful work environment um and it's my release i go into the study and i just write for a couple of hours and i come out and i'm totally refreshed I totally get that. That's that's my meditation, you know, listening to the music and writing about it. Do you feel like when you write that you get into that zone and it's like almost like somebody else takes over and you start typing and you just by the time you're done, you want, you know, you look at it and you go, wow, I just typed like, you know, 300 words and wow. It's just is that the way you feel, too? I mean, yeah, it is for me. Um, it's very much for me and I'm always very conscious that I, I don't go back and check what I've done. I'll go back and look at typos and grammar, but I don't, it's very rare that I actually amend anything because I'm in the moment, but I've seen bands post reviews, which I've been credited and I have no recollection of writing it and going back and I go, God, I really did say that, you know, and I go, where did that come from? Because we always try to find, as writers, we try to find a way of really getting over what the music makes us feel. Um, we all try to be as objective as possible. It's something I'm very, very conscious of. Uh, but at the same time, music is subjective. It's going, it ties in with us. It ties in with emotions. It ties in with feelings. It ties in with memory very strongly. And so we always have that subjectivity even when we're trying to be objective but I literally just go and it was the same when I was younger I used to play um, but you know not for many many years but if I was really playing well then I I was gone 
Um, and I remember watching an interview with Rick Waitman and he said, if you watch me play, you'll often see me play with my eyes closed because I'm actually just lost in the music. So, and that's how I feel when I'm writing. I don't close my eyes, but sometimes sentences come out and I have no idea where they've come from. <laughs> it's so great to talk to somebody that I can relate to on that level, you know. Did you go to school for journalism or did you just uh, wing it like I did? No, wing it. What happened was, um, and this is hard for people to understand because the internet is so pervasive and here we are in you know, two different parts of the world on a video call. Um, you know, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have even have imagined it. Uh, but back in the 80s, I was very keen on Jethro Tull. And I used some books to find out more information about Tull. But I got interested in trying to track down bands that Tull band members had been in, either prior or post their time in Jethro Tull. And I was very interested in the bassist, John Glascock, who had been in a couple of fairly well-known bands like Chicken Shack and The Gods, but he'd been in a band called Carmen, and I didn't know anything about it. Couldn't find out anything about it. Um, but of course, there's no internet, no Google. So I wrote to, I did what everybody did in the UK back then, I wrote a letter to Record Collector. Record Collector printed my letter asking for information about Carmen. And it was seen by the editor of the, at then back then it was a little magazine called A New Day, run by Dave Reese, and it was the magazine that everybody subscribed to if they were interested and told. Dave and I knew each other. He saw the letter, so he wrote me a letter, no email, saying, if you do get information on Carmen, please can you write a piece for A New Day? And that was the first time I wrote anything or thought that anybody might be interested. And, you know, it was written in longhand on some A4 paper and posted to him, and he typed it up and he used it. And then I joined the um, Mensa, the High IQ Society. I moved to London. I didn't know anybody. I was already a member of Mensa, and I thought, well, maybe I can find friends there. Um, most of the 35,000 members of Mensa had nothing in common with me. However, there was a small group who wanted to do something about rock music. So I got interested in that. As I'd written the piece on Carmen, I sent it in to the editor. That encouraged me to start writing um, a few more pieces on things that I was buying. Then she gave up the magazine after the fifth issue, and I went, oh, I can do that. So I bought myself an electronic typewriter with 1K of memory, because there were no home computers. And I started running the magazine, which turned into feedback. I was introduced to the Progressive Underground through bands like Galahad and Twelfth Night in 1991, and I wrote to Stu Nicholson in Galahad, bought the CD that had come out not long before, Nothing Is Written, bought their previous tape, happened to mention I was running this little magazine. And then a few weeks later, I had a tape turn up through the post from Big Big Train. Now, Big Big Train are probably one of the biggest bands around now in our, in our scene. Back then, they were five guys from Dorset that nobody knew of. They sent me this tape and some photos and a letter saying, we'd like you to hear this. And I went, hang on, someone's sending me music and I haven't paid for it. Um, so I did the best I could writing about it. And I thought, well, I wonder if I contact other bands. I wonder if they would be interested. And then I wonder if I contact other labels. And it snowballed, absolutely snowballed. And I've been writing, I won't say full-time because I have a full-time job, but I've, there's never been a period where well, I haven't been writing in the last 30 years. So that's incredible. So I was just going to ask you that if you were actually making a living from this, but you have a full time job plus this. Wow. Yep. How many hours of sleep do you get? 
Not much. Um, you know, like last night, I spent a couple of hours working last night, but that was on top of an 11 hour work day, you know, so it's, but it's my, it's what I need to, to recover. Um, this weekend so far, nothing has gone wrong at work. Um, I'm a CIO, so I run IT for a company down here and I'm actually sat in the office now. My plan is to spend the whole day writing. Um, I'm working away from home at the moment, so I don't have any of the home chores to do. Um, I'm working in one city, my house is my, my home and my family's in another one. Um, so I'm just going to sit and write today. It's what Great. I do. So you're from the UK, but you ended up in New Zealand. Is that because of your wife or? Um, no, it was because of work. I used to work for a supermarket chain called Safeway Stores, which is not the same as the American chain, but um, they'd been sold off from the American chain some years earlier. We got taken over um by another company and we just didn't enjoy it and we'd lived in different parts of the uk and we went well where do we want to live if we work out where we want to live then we can work out where i'll find work and we just said well is now the time when we should think why restrict ourselves to the uk the uk is not the country anymore that i grew up in it's changed um in some ways much better um in other ways not so much and we just decided to to really make a change so we moved to the other side of the world um I now live in a country that geographically is larger than Great Britain, spread over a few islands, two big ones and some smaller ones. There's less than five million people in the whole country. It's quite beautiful too, isn't it? It is stunning. I have a, I live near Christchurch, which is the third largest city in New Zealand. It's got all of 450,000 people in Greater Christchurch. And I've got a 14 acre farm and I'm only half an hour away from the city. Yeah, so it's great. I'm very lucky. I feel blessed to, blessed to do this. I mean, I love doing this. I wish I started it so long ago. Um, I'm finding it difficult to, you know, have it take off like I'd want it to, as I would imagine it to. Um, I had an interview with Ian Anderson. I've been waiting over 20 years, right? So I used the podcast app, and it didn't record the audio. Talk about bumped. I mean, that's that was like icing on the cake for me that would have done it that would have helped me push this thing out there and be recognized you know doing these things but and i haven't heard from podbean they you know they asked me all these questions and you know you could see it that it was running but there was no audio so the don't ever use podbean in the app i'm just giving you fair warning now <laughs> that's why i'm doing it this way but yeah well back, back back in the old day when it was used to be um either on the phone or um you know in person you know i've still got a small cassette player that i used to take everywhere with me and i used to record phones um at phone interviews because obviously there was no mobile phones back in the 90s and i've still got uh, audio of people like um, Stu nicholson from galahad in the 90s doing interviews and nick barrett doing interviews somewhere i've got an interview i did with lemmy Oh, it must be 15 years ago from Motorhead, you know, so there's, I've, I tried to keep all of the tapes. So I've still got various old interviews from people and I've luckily still got all the demo tapes. Although over the years, obviously I've moved quite a bit, including to the other side of the world. Uh, and over the years I've got rid of, I don't know, three or 4,000 CDs. I never got rid of any tapes, which meant when it came to putting the artwork into the book, um, pretty much all the demo tape artwork you see there is just artwork I've scanned myself because I've still got them, That's even great. when bands don't. 
But I got the second volume from Cleopatra, so the third one's going to be coming soon. And is that the one that has um, video in it and interviews and so forth? I thought I saw something about that. Yeah, so the first one is A to H. The second one is I to S. The third one is T to Z, plus what I call small reviews. Now, yeah, my reviews aren't very big anyway, but back in the day, I would sometimes have 15 albums turn up in one go from a record label. And what I used to do, I'd review them all together. And originally, I wasn't going to include them in the book because they are that much shorter. But then I realized some of these bands aren't mentioned anywhere else. And some of these bands may not actually be mentioned anywhere. So I thought, right, well, I'm going to include that. So they're in there. I selected um, some of the various artists' reviews. I didn't review. I didn't include everything I'd written there, but mostly samplers from labels like SI Music and Cyclops and things like that. Video reviews and DVD reviews. Um, they're all in there as well. But the two bits that make volume three actually my favorite of the three are the interviews and the live reviews, the gig reviews. So you've got reviews of um, me were going with Credo, for example. I did a lot of work with Credo back in the early days because uh, I'd worked with Mark with his previous couple of bands, Mark Colton, the singer. Uh, I, used to write, I used to write the newsletter for his previous band, Free Will, for example. But um, we used to play pubs. You know, Credo now will go out and they'll play a fairly reasonable size venues. They'll go to Poland and they'll sell out theatres and all this sort of thing. But we were playing to 30 people in a pub, you know, and those reviews are in there. And to me, it really brings back a time which doesn't exist anymore. I was very lucky. The way that my books, the way that the reviews were written and you can see it, it almost is like a... I'm writing for people who are friends because we all know what we're involved with. It's all a scene. And back then, it really was a scene. We used to see the same faces at every gig. You know, you used to bump into the same people all the time. And funnily enough, I went back to the UK a couple of years ago um, for a festival. And I met up with Stu Nicholson from Galahad because he's one of my oldest mates in music. Um, we were chatting away and I told him where I was going. And a couple of days later, I get this uh, message through Facebook from Stu saying, do you know Matt Ellis is at the same gig you are? And Matt Ellis was one of the guys who I used to bump in into in all the prog gigs all the way through the 90s, wherever they were. And we actually ended up catching up, you know, in a field in Oxfordshire. And we hadn't seen each other for best part of 20 years. You know, so it was quite cool. Music really was a family and is a family. And people like uh, Arto Chaflovsky. Now, Arto, I don't know if you've come across Arto. He runs uh, a program uh, on MLWZ. It's a Polish radio station. So it's a proper broadcast and internet radio station, but it's primarily started off as a proper broadcast radio. And he stayed at my house a few times and his wife back in the UK and his daughter's come and stayed with me in New Zealand. So it really is a way of making friends and family, which is great. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole culture. And um, I imagine these people are really down to earth. Like, you know, you know, Dream Theater. Everybody knows Dream Theater now, right? I somehow connected with Jordan Rudis uh, years ago. I don't even remember how, but um, he was giving me the backstage passes and was covering the concerts. And I, I've seen them like nine times now. And when I met these guys, they're superstars, you know, and they act, you know, just, just like you and I sitting here talking. They were so down to earth. I'm like, that is so great. I mean, they remember where they came from. I think, you know, it took them like 20, 25 years to really make it. So it's like they paid their dues and then some. So it's just nice to see people that are humble and appreciative 
of their audience and are just regular guys like you and I, you know, it's, it's really, really nice to see that. And I, and I think the, and I think there's something about it. The, the, there are a lot of assholes in music, but there's an awful lot of good people. And within the progressive scene, I can say there's, I haven't really come across anybody who's treated me badly and I treat people how I find them. And, you know, still one of my biggest kicks is I had an interview arranged with Steve Howe um, from Yes. And my phone rang and I picked the phone up and I was expecting it to be a, an agent on the other end. So, oh, you know, we've got this call for you. And it was Steve. And he's going, oh, can I speak to Kev, please? And I'm going, I, 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 you know, I grew up listening to his music. To me, the man was I, him and Lemmy. Oh, and I guess Fish as well. They they. I feel so blessed to have been able to meet them and, you know, sat in a hotel with fish whilst he's pouring me a cup of tea from a, from a teapot. And then he goes, I remember you, you said so-and-so about my last album. And I went, yeah, I did. He said, do you know what I did with that review? And I went, no, he said, I cut it out and I stuck it on the studio wall. And that he said, and when he was recording the current album, which was then, um, rain gods with zippos he said if he needed inspiration he would go back and he'd read my review on the wall and then he'd go back into the studio and i felt you know like this big <laughs> that's great now when i saw that i i was looking for your through your first volume and i saw rain gods with zippos when i heard that to me it was like a revelation i love that album then i found marillion and i really went nuts i'm like wow it's been so long since i you know connected with band like that and uh, i just love marillion i get I got mostly all their stuff, and um, I just recently got. Um, I'll show it to you. Give me one second. This uh, five LP box set, Afraid of uh, Afraid of Sunlight. Yep. Remember this? Yes, yeah. I do. Yeah. Isn't that an amazing cover? It's stunning, eh? Um, I have to be honest. I think the last really good Marillion album was, um, oh God, it's the one with Easter on it. The, the first album they did post Fish. And I've seen, um, I've seen them with Hogarth, I don't know, three, four, five, maybe six times. And every time I go in hopeful that they're going to be great. And every time I just come away disappointed and I go, it's, it, that to me, they're not the band they were. I saw, I only saw Marillion once with Fish. I saw them on the Misplaced Childhood tour, um, which blew me away. But I followed them right from the early days. Somewhere I've still got a picture disc of Market Square Heroes, which has got Grendel on the back. Um, but I love Marillion. And actually, over the years, I've collected lots of bootlegs and all that sort of thing. And I would have to say my favorite period of the band is actually probably before they recorded their first album. You know, yeah, right. when they were a lot heavier, a lot chunkier. Um, but bands change. I have no problem with bands changing. Um, but the last time I saw Marillion a couple of years ago, I went, yeah, I'm never going to see these guys out of choice again. Although I'll probably keep buying the albums because I'll probably, I'll keep going and I'll come, well, maybe this one will be good, you know, and I'll listen, I'll be disappointed. and But I'll buy the next one, you know, but <laughs> I probably won't go and see them again. So what they had grew- a, I'm sorry, go on. No, well, you go. I'll- I was wondering what kind of music you grew up on. You said that you listened to Yes and all of that. Um, I remember watching the Beatles when I was five years old on Ed Sullivan and and listening to my brother's records and my sister's records. And then I found my own way, you know, as a teenager, um, Kiss, Black Sabbath, you know, all those bands. 
So I was just wondering what you grew up on when you were a child and into your teens. Yeah, well, my parents, my, my dad listened to jazz. Um, my parents went were into what I call popular music. Um, um, we were lucky in the UK in the sense that there was a program out uh, every Thursday called Top of the Pops. And so in the early 70s, you know, I would never miss it. And in the early 70s, you would see bands like The Sweet and Slade and things like that. So started to get interested in music, but really didn't know really much about it. And then when I was 11, uh, I went to grammar school and became friends with a guy there when we were the same age. But he had an older brother. And we went down into the den at his house and went through his brother's record collection. And we picked two albums at random, just from the covers. We had no idea who they were. So, And I still don't know which one we played first, but we played both of them that day. One was Ted Nugent, Free For All. And the other one was Black Sabbath, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Oh, and I can honestly say my my life changed that day. From there, I went into... Um, we basically ripped through that record collection and he had Deep Purple, Atomic Rooster, Pretty Things, um, you name it, he seemed to have it. And from there, it just exploded into a massive interest into me for for hard rock, heavy metal and progressive rock. But at the same time, I was discovering folk and I was, you know, I was just I'm massively expanding my um, musical knowledge. The very first gig I attended was... Cliff Richard on a gospel tour in 1977, which was I was in the church at the time and they took us. But then the first proper gig I went to is 1980. So I was 17 and that was Genesis when they did the small halls tour for Duke. And they were only playing theatres that held 1500 people, 2000 people. And then later that summer, I saw my first metal gig, which was Saxon, supported by Tugs of Pantang. And really, it's been downhill ever since. You know, I'm just just been massively interested in all different forms of music and really my personal tastes they've just exploded over the years it took me a long time to get into Zappa I think I was frightened of is just how big that catalogue is and I didn't really know where to go so in the end I just took the plunge and picked a couple of early albums and went right let's start here yeah the man built a career so he must have started somewhere and went into that and that once I got into that, I'm just going, wow. It took me a long time to get really get into Krautrock. Um, I'm now a big fan of Art Zoid. Um, my Christmas present last year, last year, the year before last, my Christmas present was the Art Zoid 44 and a half box set of CDs and DVDs, which I highly recommend to anybody who wants really experimental music. But it was through the 80s, 70s and 80s, I was still following bands and going to as many gigs as I could. But I missed, uh, apart from Marillion and hearing a bit of Palace, I missed Twelfth Night, which I still am really upset over because I was in London when Twelfth Night were playing in London. I just didn't know anything about them. You know, I didn't see Hayes in the in the early days. I didn't see Tamarisk back then and didn't see Mark Kwan or all these other progressive bands were making a name for themselves, but they weren't being written about in the music press that I was buying. And then in the 90s, when I discovered the underground scene then, and I really threw myself into it, you know, it didn't matter who was playing or where they were playing, if it was Galahad or if it was Ark or if it was Mentor or if it was Jeff Mann or Twelfth Night, well, not Twelfth Night, they weren't there, and then, but Citizen Kane or, or whoever. I was trying really hard to get to gigs and 
some of the best gigs of my life have been tiny. Um, there was a village, well, there is a village um, called Whitchurch, and the landlord of the local pub decided he wanted to put on gigs in the village hall. And the very first gig was at Galahad, supported by Free Will. And it was incredible. You know, the village hall was packed. The band had a great time. And then a little while later, he somehow convinced Steve Hackett to play there as a warm up for his next UK tour. And it was a village hall, 200 people. And I was in there for the sound check. And Steve and the band ran through the complete set. So I watched a two hour show as a sound check with about seven or eight people in the room. And then I watched it again that night. It was awesome. <laughs> That's cool. Well, you've had a lot of exposure. Uh, you're light years ahead of me with, with the Prague. I mean, you're mentioning bands I've never even heard of. Um, and, you know, all the coverage that you've provided over the years. It, it sounds like you've got a really good education and you just know of a ton of bands and you've got a lot of relationships out there. So, Yeah, and it's just through, I, again, I'm very lucky. These days, there are... You want to set up a prog blogs website, whatever, go for it. You know, there's there's a couple of very well-known established ones, um, which are slightly different. Things like DPRP or um, IO or, um, yeah, obviously prog archives. See a tranquility. Yeah. Yeah. See a tranquility. Um, yeah. And they all do great work in, in different ways. Um, and but back then. Let's go back to the 90s when I started writing about it. No one was writing about it and there was no Internet. It was all fanzines and little magazines like that. So I still write for Acid Dragon. I've been writing for Acid Dragon on and off for more than a quarter of a century. Um, Thierry was doing this and Acid Dragon in France was doing the same thing that I was doing in uh, the UK. The Organ was a quite important underground magazine in the UK, uh, background out of Holland. Um, Fatea lasted a little while in the UK. Blindsight lasted for five issues. Salobit lasted for about four. But there were very few like um, me or Acid Dragon, which actually lasted. Um, and we kept it going and we kept pumping it out. And because of that, we were being treated fairly seriously by both bands and labels, uh, which was great. And it meant that yeah, if you look, take Big Big Train, for example, uh, everybody knows who they are now. But their very first advertising, which included a review, was a review that I'd written. They knew they weren't going to get lots of people reading my magazine because at its height, it was like 200. Um, so that was nothing. Um, but they could use what I'd written. They could use it to either learn from themselves or they could use it to help develop their sound or they could use it in advertising and lots of bands did they could use it when they're going to record labels and it did mean that you know, for example i've swapped an email this morning with martin orford um, he used to be the keyboard player in iq and is still the keyboard player in jadis well back in the 90s we would speak to each other at least once a month on the phone yeah, you know, Stu Nicholson, um, we used to say at one time we were speaking almost weekly. And if we get on the phone now, it's never a good idea because it'll always be a couple of hours. Um, and that's all from the relationships we built back then. And I became 
a sounding board for bands as well. You know, they ring me up, Kev, what do you think of? Do you think this? Do you know this person? Do you know that person? How do you think we can do this? And even still today, I try and help people. I'll write press release. If a band contacts me, like mostly bands who don't have English as a first language, I say, Kevin, can you write a press release for me? Yeah, I'll write a press release for you. Kevin, can you check this for me? Yeah, I can check that for you. I write press releases for a label here in um, New Zealand. Um, and my rates are always the same. I was approached by an artist recently and she was having problems with a biography. And I said to her, look, when you're ready to do it, we'll sit down, we'll work it out. I'll ask you a bunch of questions. We'll pull it all together. We'll come up with a little package. It'll be great. And she said, oh, that's wonderful. You have to tell me what your rates are. I'll pay whatever you want. I said, it's the same rates as always. And she said, what's that? I said, zero. And she said, nobody works for free. And I went, well, I do. Because this is all about publicizing the music that I believe in. I hear, well, I try not to listen to the radio, but I hear some of the things on the radio from people who've made an absolute fortune. And then I look at Galahad and, you know, at one time the singer was an accountant, the guitarist was a postman, the drummer was a postman. You know, you look at bands like IQ, pretty convinced that everybody in IQ has a day job. There's very few bands that I can point to. I'll point Nick Barrett of Pendragon, Clive Nolan, um, are probably the only two that I could point to in our scene where they make their living just from music. Um, you look at Carl Groom, you know, he's guitarist in Threshold, um, which assigned to Nuclear Blast, one of the biggest labels around, um, you know, and yet he makes his living as a sound engineer, as a producer, as uh, all this sort of thing, you know, so he's not just a musician. Um, in book three, volume three, you'll find a review of the, of, well, all of Threshold stuff at the time. I knew Carl really well. And um, we were in Whitchurch for a gig. Uh, I can't remember who was playing. We were in the fish and chip shop. And I've never forgot. Oh, it was Jadis. We were there to see Jadis. And he was talking away to me. And I said, he said, oh, the new album comes, the first, the debut album comes out soon. So this was Wounded Land. And I go, oh, great, really looking forward to it. And he put his hand in his pocket and he had his copy of the CD that he'd been sent by the label, you know, the initial, his initial one. He said, here, take this, take this. Tell me what you think, you know, and that's what it was like back then, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been in Clive's house or, you know, or in the studio with, um, with Carl or whatever and thing, you know, just happen. Oh, have you, do you know this sort of thing? I mean, when I went back to the UK, uh, two years ago, you know, I ended up staying at Stu's house. I was around Mark Colton's house from Credo. I was in Clive's house going through stuff with him. You know, and it's just because of the relationships we built all those years ago when there was, it was a little family, a little group. These days it's bigger, um, and it's harder um to build that sort of relationship just because people are being pulled from pillar to post all the time but back then back in the early 90s when i started uh really pushing the scene there was no one so i used to larry colota was running a label called kinesis in america i got everything that kinesis released i got everything that musea released i got everything that cyclops in the uk released because i was one of the few people writing about it in the uk so i used to get everything and that's why i've ended up this churning of reviews just because I have to you know I owe it to bands I owe it to labels and the reason for putting these volumes out 
is actually nothing of it's not about me at all it never has been it's always been about the music it's always about getting the recognition for for these bands and in the, today of the with the internet what i'm hoping is that people will use these as guides and that's certainly how, what i've been told by people is that they've they've gone in and they find oh never heard of that band that sounds interesting oh i can google them oh look there's actually some music available on youtube or something like this and actually start finding out about them and some of these bands are still going some of these bands you know were there and gone in a in a twinkle of an eye i defy anybody and yeah i've been speaking to some writers that i highly admire um I defy anybody to say that they are aware of all the stuff I've covered in here. And I've not been able to find anybody is. Everybody's finding something new. You know, you find a load of stuff in there from Japan. Somehow I got involved with Poseidon Records in Japan. So Hiroshi Masuda used to send me everything Poseidon released, you know, and so it goes on. That's really cool. Well, you mentioned Threshold. Uh, they're on my bucket list if they ever come to America. I know that the drummer saved that group. He... You remember what happened? They almost disbanded, then the drummer invested, right? Um, I haven't heard that one. It wouldn't surprise me. The band went through a lot. I've been through a lot of change over the years. Um, I've I've saw them three or four times. I think their last album is probably the best one they've released, to be honest. Um, and I know they've been playing that a lot in Europe. Um, they are a great band. Um, the actual lineup now is very strong um obviously it's changed from from the early days um i was always a big fan and still i'm a big fan of damien wilson and back at the time he was singing in threshold and he was singing in landmark um and he just got an amazing voice and the album he did with rick waitman is still one of my favorites um of rick's complete catalog and i've got more than 100 rick waitman albums i'm a big fan of his so yeah the band threshold of always been great and they changed the music scene in the uk there's no doubt because there was no one doing prog metal they were really the first one and they approached it from a different angle to dream theater dream theater to me were always a progressive band going heavy whereas threshold were much more of a metal band moving into prog um so you get far more um crunch with threshold threshold than you do with dream theater um yeah. and the keyboards come in and that's what changes it right yeah, yeah, ex exactly. So, um, absolutely fascinating band, a great band to see live, heavy band to see live, and some of the, all the reviews that I wrote of the live, you know, of seeing them live are in the um, are in volume three. I think there was a GEP night, and so IQ obviously owned Giant Electric P. Threshold were on the label at the time. I got a funny feeling Big Big Train played on the same bill because they were on GEP at the time. So that was quite a good night to see those three bands together. Yeah, I covered all the the um, stuff that came out on Inside Out with the little slipcases with Threshold. That's what got yep. me into that, yeah. Then I ended up getting my son turned on to all that. And, you know, the first concert I ever brought him to when he was 15 or 16 was Dream Theater. He's a guitar player, and he learned a lot by talking to John Petrucci, you know. Do you ever get in a relationship with uh, Arian? I mentioned, I, I forgot to say that. He, what a wonderful man he is. And he would always send me his stuff and sign it. And did you ever cover any of his stuff? Who's that, sorry? Ar Ar Arjun Lukensen, oh. Arian. Yeah. Uh, Arian. Um, I've never had any dealings with him directly. I've, I used to get everything that Inside Out's released, right? Yeah. Right up to 2006. The problem is, 
Inside Out now can't work out what part of the world I live in. Um, America, the American guy for, because they're owned by Sony now, I think, aren't they? But the American guy for Inside Out isn't allowed to send me stuff. So he's passed me over to Europe and Europe are going, well, you're not Europe. And so in the end, I get nothing these days. But I did, and you'll see obviously in, in volume one, there's a lot of area on um, into the electric castle and all that sort of thing. And I really did like the, because Damien worked with him as well, obviously, you know. yeah, and I've always been a big fan of Arian stuff. I think he's done some really interesting material. And back in the day, back in the 90s, he was also guesting quite a lot on other bands' um, stuff. So I think he played on Carnival of Solves, which was the um, Steve Rothery side project, which I always thought never got the traction it deserved. Which, yeah, he was he's around quite a lot in the early days, but I've never had direct contact with him. But an incredible musician and always been impressed with his stuff. You like Kino? I think Kino's great. Yeah, Kino's good. Again, um, I've not heard any of that for for a while. I don't think um, the early stuff because, like I say, anything that's I presume they're still on Inside Out, but anything that's on Inside Out, I haven't really heard for the last uh, thirteen years, fourteen, uh, yeah, thirteen years. I just don't get it. Uh, I don't worry too much because as it is, I get sent too much material. I have access to probably thirty or forty albums a week, um, and I have. I, I have a personal rule, uh, myself and Olaf Bjornsson, who's a writer I admire out in Norway, we have we do it different ways. His, the way he does it is he grabs everything that he is, has access to. He will review some, he will play some, but he makes it available to other DJs to, to play. So he right. acts as a, as a font, if you like. He actually just as a funnel. Whereas my view is if I'm sent something physically, I review it. If a band contacts me directly and asks me to review something, I review it. If it's offered to me by a label and I download it, I review it. But I make a choice on whether or not I download it. And these days, I look to see what it is before I grab it. Um, And if it's something that I think looks interesting or it's a band I know or I've worked with before, then chances are I'll grab it. But I'm always review honestly, which means that just because you've sent it to me doesn't mean I'm going to write nice things about it. That's true. That's a chance you take. <laughs> yeah. So, and I tell everybody, first off, I say, guys, you need to realize it's going to be four or five months before I get to it due to backlog. Yeah. Because of the amount of time the books has taken up, I've, I've never been this far behind. But, you know, it's taken a lot of time to do these. Um, in fact, it's actually taken, the mo- it's taken me more than five years to get to this point um, because all of the original reviews, they were done on a typewriter or on an Amstrad. So I had to retype them all. And the copying was so poor that I actually couldn't use optical character recognition. I really, really just had to read it and retype it um, and then finding all the artwork and doing everything. So it's been a it really has been a work of love. Um, but, yeah, so a lot of work's gone into it. Well, you're finally going to start seeing a monetary benefit from all that work. Uh, I, I doubt it. It's, these really? are selling it. No, these are selling their hundreds, not in their thousands. Um, volume one's the last sales figures I had for volume one was less than 300 copies worldwide. No kidding. Oh, yeah. I thought you said it was doing well, so I figured maybe you were making oh, some no. money. No, no, the, publish, the publisher's really pleased with it because he expected it to sell less, apparently. He did oh. it because he, he did it because he believes in it. Uh, he did it because he, so, um, 
they've got a setup which is print to order so basically amazon will order 10 they'll print 10 you know and so it goes on like that so there's not like thousands of thousands in a print run investment um but he's very pleased he, so he's already talking to me about doing a volume four which i'm just trying to get my head around at the moment um but let you know get volume three out of the way and see where we go if we decide to do another one it'll be easier just because i've got everything digitally you know so if we said well we've gone up to 2006 let's put another book together that is 350 pages long with all the artwork well how many years you know so we'll just work to a page limit as opposed to a year so does that take three years or four years or five years or you know what does it take um i would like to have a proper index in the back of the next one so you can actually see where bands appear because they appear in multiple places and multiple volumes um you know there will be some bands that will have appeared in the first volume um and so a lot of will appear in one and three or two and three not so many will appear in one two. the musicians will appear in one two and three so clive nolan for example he's in all three you know he's all over the bloody place because just in the amount of bands and projects he has from so volume two you've got shadowland you've got strangers on a train volume one you've got arena uh, volume two you've got pendragon um, and then all of these are in volume three as well um so yeah it's just I'm not going to make any money from it, but it's not costing me any money. And as I said, it's all about the bands. It's all about trying to get recognition for an area of music where the light never shone. It's shining now through people like you who shine a light and, you know, which is fantastic. But back in those days, there was no Internet. There was no mass media. And so everything that was written has got lost. Um, I regret that um, I don't have all the copies of the organ that I used to get. I used to swap them for copies of feedback. And, um, you know, because I used to really enjoy reading them. And there's a, there's a valuable resource in there. And I read some of the things. I was talking to Tracy Hitchings the other day. And she, I, she was one of my favorite singers. She fronted Landmark for a while. She did an amazing solo album. Some of those songs have just been reworked by Clive Nolan with a new singer. And um, I was talking to her and I said, I've just been going through volume three, the proof. Did you know that Nick Barrett from Pendragon said he wanted to do an album with you? And she went, no. <laughs> She's going, that's the first I've ever heard that. And I said, I've got it here. That's great. Well, you know, what's really cool. Uh, you know, we, we both agree that we're blessed and, and lucky, fortunate, whatever you want to call it. Um, we are leaving a legacy behind us. You know, by the time we pass away, there's always going to be that there for us. Much like a recording artist, the music never dies, right? So all what you're doing now is even better. I mean, all mine's in Word Docs since 1998, right? Or, or yeah. in uh, Netscape. That's what I created my first site on. Um, and my kids will have all that. But maybe someday I'll be able to make a book, too. I'd love to do that. But, uh, no, I definitely haven't written as much as you have. That's for sure. Guys, I've been around a long time. I'll say I've been really lucky. Um, but this was something I felt I had to do. I was inspired by a book called Strawberry Bricks. Have you come across Strawberry Bricks? Yes, I have. Yep. Right. So um, I was I was reading the Strawberry Bricks. I was in I was in actually in Orlando. I was on holiday. 
and we've gone to Orlando and I'd taken a book with me and I'm reading this book and it was Strawberry Bricks Guide. And I was thinking, this was the end of 2011. I'm going, this is really weird. You know, no one ever writes about my scene. That, that book stops in what, 82, I think Chaz stops it. And then um, it just got me thinking. And over the next couple of years, I kept thinking, well, I don't know if anybody had would be interested in publishing it and it's going to take too much work if no one wants to put it out there and and I happened to be on email one day with the editor of Gonzo magazine which is a magazine I've been writing for 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 years and he said to, you know I said what do you think about this as an idea yeah do you think it would be worthwhile and he came back to me and he said yeah what do it and then I'll publish it and I went pardon he said I'll run the he says, I run the book side of Gonzo Media. It's all down to me what gets published. I'll publish it if you'll write it. So that was September 2014. Um, and then it took, oh, it took a couple of years, two and a half years to get all of the initial draft done, just the text. And when we checked it out, it was more than half a million words. So that's bigger than Lord of the Rings. And I sent it to him and he came back to me and he said, it's too big. And I went, yeah, I know. You know, what we're going to do. I said, oh, you know, well, what do you think? He said, we'll put it out in three volumes, but I want all the artwork. And I went, what? You know, so then I had to re go re-back. Um, we broke it into three volumes. We put all the artwork in and just kept working on it. And then I was speaking to a friend of mine, Martin Springett, who had contacted me because I'd reviewed some music of his from years ago and you know we'd become mates and all this and I said how do you fancy doing the artwork because he is a professional illustrator that's what he does so he went oh yeah great definitely so the cover of the first one as has been pointed out by a few people who know originally appeared as an album cover for Coney Hatch um, in the late 70s early 80s but Martin was the artist Martin was the one who did the art for it so he owns the artistic copyright. So he just removed the, the Coney Hatch lettering off it. And so that's where that came from. It was interesting because a couple of people thought I'd stolen it. And, and I get that. But um, <laughs> Martin actually did that. And then we, he gave me a feminine one for the second one, for the second uh, volume, which is interesting because that image has never appeared anywhere. He drew it for himself after he was recovering from a heart operation. So it's a very personal piece of art for, for, for Martin. And it's never been used in any book or published anywhere. So that was the second volume. And, you know, he's given me something else for the third as well. And we've got it out there. Um, but it's taken all that time. And the funny thing is, I had forgotten which book had inspired me to do this. And Chaz contacted me. Chaz Snyding, Charles Snyding contacted me. Um, and he went, Kev, I'd like to do a swap for my book for yours and I went yeah fine so he sent me his uh, the latest edition of strawberry books the second edition of strawberry books and it was only when it arrived that it rang a bell and I went to my bookcase and there on my bookcase was strawberry books volume one so I went back to Chaz and I said you're not going to believe this but it's you who inspired me to write mine in the first place and I just hadn't realized so I've given him some words for the third volume which hopefully is uh, Strawberry Bricks which is hopefully going to be at the beginning of next year um, so it's all coming full circle and another thing has come full circle I told you before it started off with me writing a letter to Record Collector Record Collector this week published a review of the book where they called it a bible 
and you're going that really is full circle and then i was interviewed last week by rock and roll magazine got rock and reel magazine sorry in the uk that's a magazine i wrote for in the 90s and some of the pieces in these books and in fact the interviews with fish all came about through rock and reel so again there's things that are turning full circle and it was great that you know i'd clive and greg provide some words for the back of volume one greg sporton from big train clive nolan volume two is nick barrett and uh, martin orford volume three is gary chandler from jadis and john dexter jones from jump and the forward for the last one is by Artur Chaflowski from MLWZ and Steve Payne from Legend. Um, and it's it's just great that, you know, the, all the guys I've admired over the years, they've come back and they've, you know, they appreciate what I've done here. So it's great. I love it. That's great. Well, it's been great talking to you. I hope we can stay in touch. And uh, if you ever yeah, cover... Yeah, really the chat. If you ever cover any vinyl and you have a review you like to post, I more than happy to put out my final and vinyl site that's the one i well, launched at the beginning of this year that site so well i will actually do that because i recently was sent an album um by an artist i admire greatly um, called captain of the lost waves i don't know if you've heard of, come across sean at all um but he's vaudeville old-time music hall uh chanson he's just totally different entertainer and i love everything he does his videos on youtube are absolutely stunning but he has actually sent me um a vinyl album to review so i will actually do that and i'll send it to you keith great i love to post it and um i use facebook a lot in groups to promote because i found long ago that twitter was pretty useless as far as getting the word out there and seeing hits coming into your website and i actually shut down one of my twitter sites because there was so much X-rated and political crap on there, I couldn't control it anymore. I don't even know where it came from. It couldn't have been anybody I was connected to, but I was so sick of blocking people. I said, that's it. So now I have my Prague Twitter and I have my Final and Vinyl Twitter and Prague Rock Music Talk is where you're probably gonna get the most action from this. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of enthusiasts out there that are gonna be interested in hearing what you have to say. So uh, I'll get this all together I'll make sure I get you the information and I'll get it posted and promoted and hopefully a lot of people will listen. Well, I hope so too, Keith. And you should be getting volume three in the new year when it's released as well. All right. Thank you, sir. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Keith. It's all been good. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye.